Everyone deserves a chance in the driver's seat. For GM and Revolt, that means leading the way on the road to an all-electric future and envisioning a world with zero crashes, zero tailpipe emissions, and zero congestion. GM's committed to making EVs accessible for everybody. That means you too. So what are you waiting for? GM's got the keys. You grab the wheel. Learn more about an all-electric future and the 000 initiative at GM.com. GM, everybody in. I think that there is something for us to learn and value and appreciate and respect the tenacity of you know, what people had to go through, and yet they're still here. Right. And I think that the same is true for African-Americans. When you look at from slavery to, you know, these rules and laws and statutes that really try to disembowel African-Americans, but we're still here, right. there is a beauty in that. And I think that that's not just something that African-Americans could, can appreciate. I think that all races can appreciate that. So, learning to me is valuable. Right. Um, I don't think we ever really want to get to a place in society where we only want to teach the good things, right? Because history isn't always good. It isn't always pretty. Right. Um, but there's always something to learn something there. To learn 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 there. Welcome to Wow Black, a seriously opinionated podcast, bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black. If black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all black everything. Everybody, welcome back to Wow Black. Welcome back, people. You know, some of, the, some of the topics we get a chance to talk about, one, are needed, just completely needed. And if I had to guess where today's topic sits, it would be high on the list. Really, and, and more than anything, because it's always being talked about in the news, it's always being talked about in the media. There are people who are for it. There are people who are against it. But I think very few people actually understand it. Bro, when it comes to critical race theory, does it make sense to you? Do you get it? Well, no. It's a theory. No, it's a, it's a theory, but I'll say it, no. To, to <laughs> clarify, it's just an absolute no. I could give you a whole bunch of, you know, subjective information around what I've heard, right. thoughts, other people's perspective, but do I really know? And do most people really right. know? Most people Hell do Hell no, right? But on top of that, not only do we not know, but we have the audacity, the gall to have strong feelings. Correct. That are founded Yep. I don't even know. I don't think they're founded on anything. They just out there. It's just you, critical race theory. So you think it's, it's pro-black, whatever it right. is, right? You have no. We, yeah. Yep. All right. So while black, that's what we're doing today. Today, you are going to get definitive information about what this critical race theory is. What? Why are so many people hot about it? Is it new? Is it old? Where did it come from? Just the information you need to really form your own perspective on how you feel about it. Are you for it? Are you against it? And I want you to be educated like we do all the time on Wild Black. And just like normal, we've got an amazing guest for you. Let me take a moment and introduce you. Today's guest is Brother Winfield Murray. 
is a practicing attorney for the U.S. Department of Labor and a professor at Morehouse here in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, all day long. He has his B.A. in English Literature from Morehouse, his J.D. from Howard University, and his Master's of Law from the George Washington University School of Law. And for the last decade, he has been dedicated to education, race, and law. Winfield, brother, welcome to Wild Black. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. And you see this brother came dressed. <laughs> sharp. For those of y'all who see the video, yeah, we have video now. We finally moving into the video age. This brother came sharp. Yes. Winfield, brother, tell him a little bit more about yourself, man. Okay, sure. So I'm an Atlanta native and um, went to Morehouse, went to Howard. And right after that, I started as a judicial clerk for the chief judge of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, Came back to Atlanta and, you know, was a prosecutor. Actually talked to the dean of my law school. And I told her that I wanted to, you know, do litigation and I was going to become a public defender. Right. And she said, well, you know, you actually might want to consider a career as right. a prosecutor because we need more African-American prosecutors. Prosecutors tend to be the most powerful person in yeah. the courtroom yeah. because they decide who brings the charges. They or whether the They set the tone. Yeah whether they dismiss the case, bring the case. So we need more black prosecutors. So I said, okay, I'll do that. Well, when I became a prosecutor, I was a prosecutor for about two to three months before I literally started getting physically ill, just going to work. Man. Because, you know, I'm seeing the over-arrest of people that look like me. You know, yeah. everyone who was on a copy of charges, everyone who made bond, everyone who was in incarcerated or in lockup were African-American and looked just like me. And so it was at that point that I decided that I wanted to do something more than just be a prosecutor. Yeah. So I went to my boss and, you know, talked to him about this thing called community court. Yeah. And community court seeks to reduce the rate of recidivism through alternative sentencing. And so I got to help establish Atlanta's community court. And in the first year of operation, we saw a reduction in crime or recidivism rate by 20%. Wow. And I think year two, by 30%. Because what I observed as a prosecutor, even in that short time, is that most people are not inherently evil. Most yeah. people aren't Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy, right? right. Most people are good people um, that do bad things, right? right. And so... When I was looking at it, most people were committing crimes because of a lack of financial right. resources, lack of education, um, mental health issues, or drug and alcohol abuse. Right. Those four issues. And I felt like if we could attack those four underlying issues, then we wouldn't have people committing crimes. And so that's what I did. Bruh. Well, look, listeners, <laughs> if, if you are interested in learning more about the role of a prosecutor, then I want you to go back. Forgive me, I don't remember the name of the episode. Bro, do you happen to remember the name of the episode where we had Sharmila on? Ooh. I don't remember. We got, we got, how many episodes we got? Ooh. A whole bunch. <laughs> Ooh. The bunch of them. Yeah. Anyway. In our catalog. Go dig in. There is an episode that is obviously about prosecution. Go check it out. She really lays down a lot of good information about why prosecutors are important to the system. If you have any questions there. But Brother Winfield, back to you, man. One, I'm grateful that you are here. I appreciate you being here. During our pre-call, you laid out nothing but gems about this topic. I can't wait to get into it. But 
got to give it to our wild black shit first. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So real quick, wild black shit is three questions. Okay. Two to get you warmed up. You already warmed up. So these two just going to throw you off completely. And okay. Then we'll, we'll get you back <laughs> on. And then the third question <laughs> is our signature question that we ask every single guest. Um, and, and they love that question. This, okay. this third one is amazing. But first question. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. In school as a kid, we all had that initial crush that presented, or we presented, a famous piece of paper. On that piece of paper, it said, I like don't, you. Don't get this brother in trouble with nothing. Do you like me? <laughs> okay. Circle yes, no, or maybe. Ain't get him in trouble. Huh? <laughs> For you, do you remember what that person's name was who you either gave that note to? So I remember her first name. Uh-huh. Do not remember her last name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was a that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. That was a long time yeah. ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, you okay. went in the bag for that kind yeah. of question. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's to make you appreciate the things you have now when you, when you initially, when you first, you know, jumped into the game. You remember your first one? Hell no. You know? And if I did, hell no. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I should have said the same. Hell no. Hell no. <laughs> I remember my first one. It was amazing. Because she said yes. She liked me back. But all right. Cool, cool, cool. That was an easy one. Second question. I've only had eyes for one woman my entire life. Just to it's your wife, right? Of course. Oh, okay. Of course. Okay. okay. You're trying to win tonight. Yeah. We all should be yeah. trying to win tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that was the first person you gave a, uh, that was the note you gave it to your I wife? I didn't give it to her. When I looked at her, I recognized, realized exactly what the situation was, that oh, God oh, had designed her specifically oh. for me in that moment when I partook of her image and her beauty. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what my destiny was. It was a moment of fulfillment, a moment of projection, a moment of prediction that I worked for the next 15 years to fulfill. Brother, I'm here. How could it be any other way? Exactly. <laughs> right, right. Wow. Exactly. You're going to be married for life. Black love is different, it's, baby. It's amazing. Yeah, especially, especially when it's at first sight. Jeez. Mm-hmm. I knew. I knew. All right. Second question. If you had to pick your attire of choice that's the most comfortable for you, what would it be? Here's the three options. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Suits and slacks, jeans and button downs, or sweatpants and t-shirts. Or tees, bows, and rees. At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting Black futures. In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting Black futures. In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Y'all out of New Orleans, you know what that is. So my entire family knows that I've been wearing suits since birth. I only own <laughs> one pair of jeans. Yeah. <laughs> Bro, you ain't cutting the grass in a suit, are you? Listen, I pretty much do just about everything in, in a, a suit. suit. Like, I grill in a suit, like, at least slacks and a polo shirt. Like, I have always been in oh. suits. When I would go to visit my grandparents who lived in the country, right? Brownsville, Tennessee. Uh-huh. You know, church is big in the country. So mm-hmm. we would Absolutely. go to church. All of my cousins would go back in, immediately take off their suits, and I would be outside waiting for them to come back out, still in the suit, running and playing. <laughs> Clean and ready. 98 degrees on a farm. In a suit. My grandparents would literally have to make me take Take off my suit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so that's an easy one, too. That's easier than the first one. You asked I, right. I, yeah. I see it. I just passion around these suits. That's what I'm talking about. If y'all see this brother, he's sharp. You know what's funny about that to me? What? <clears throat> so, I can feel that. But here's why. Growing up in Vicksburg, Mississippi, I was in this club called, it was the AFIA Leadership Club, right? Okay, okay. And it was all about young black kids, right? Men, young men. And when we had our meetings, you couldn't come in a t-shirt, you couldn't come in jeans, you had to come in a suit. And after that meeting, we would go to the mall and like grab something to eat. Man, the way I felt after that meeting, being in the middle of the mall where everybody was in shorts or flip-flops and I had a suit on walking, I felt like I was on top of the damn world. Mm -hmm. I felt powerful. I felt smart. So, there's something, I don't know about cutting grass, but there's something, to, there's something to walking around in that suit. So Absolutely. I'm with you. Absolutely. It, it gives a different air of, of how people should respond to you. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they act accordingly to that mm-hmm. in most instances. You know? that, I think that was my first lesson in how clothes impact the way people receive you. Mm-hmm. Because they received me differently. Absolutely. When I had that suit on. Even, even now, though my suit was probably $49.99 from JCPenney's. <laughs> even now, it, it, I still I still see and sense that whole that whole vibe. Yeah. So and I if I it. can just jump in and just say this is your show. even uh judges, I've seen it happen. You know, if you come into a judge's courtroom and you're wearing sweats, you're gonna be treated differently mm-hmm. than if you're in a suit. I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, but right? It's real. But it's real. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. And I know countless people who've walked into court. I used to try to save them when I was a prosecutor. I was like, listen, let's just reset your case for you to come back. Because I know this particular judge is going to say off the streets, meaning yeah. that, you know, they're going to take you off your copy of charges and put you back because they're going to automatically assume that you are guilty, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. one of the fallacies of this legal system, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I also want to say shout out to my Uncle Chester. Who I've never seen anything but a pair of slacks. Lawn work, sleep, it don't matter. Shout out to Jess. <laughs> what he does. Y'all, y'all might be kindred spirits. Maybe, maybe. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> from the same something. cloth. Something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Third question. This is the final question, signature question. Okay. What do you love most 
about life while black? Honesty, transparency. Um, there's a genuineness about it. Mm-hmm. I have to say, you know, and I think, you know, given this political climate that we're currently in, I think we now see the value of that more than ever. But yeah, I agree yeah, with that. That's my thought. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a good one. All right. Well, this part of the show is a, is the dope quote. Okay. And what the dope quote is, is something from history, religion, entertainment typically out of the mouth of someone black, and it has relevance on what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Today's quote is not dope. <laughs> it is not from the mouth. <laughs> it's the opposite of dope. It is not from someone black. It's from an article that I read. But I wanted to start with this quote as we got ready to have this conversation about critical race theory. So I'm going to read this. Critical race theory is a significant and disturbing trend that is divisive and counterproductive and will not result in greater racial harmony, but is instead leading to the balkanization of college campuses and society, characterized by greater strife, friction, resentment, hostility, and discord. Instead of fostering diversity and inclusion, critical race theory and its corrosive cousins will produce just the opposite, uniformity and exclusion based on one's identity. I wanted to read that because I think for anyone considering the topic of critical race theory, we've heard something like that before, right? We've heard the pros, we've heard the cons, but this particular comment I've seen repeated on countless news programs, Mm -hmm. countless Facebook posts, Mm -hmm. conversations. And when I hear that... From senators. Exactly. Mm -hmm. When I hear that, all my defense mechanisms go up. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean this is right or wrong, right? Everyone is entitled to their opinion, although I would disagree with some opinions. But all of my defense mechanisms go up. And I realize that race in America, especially across the last several years, have begun to condition responses in us all, Mm -hmm. right? Right. I do not fully understand what critical race theory is. Yet, the notion of this context offends me, Mm -hmm. right? And so, being I read that, and we hear that so often, I wanted to start with, talk about what that means and why that is such a popular opinion of what critical race theory is. And then we'll dive into what it actually is. So, and it's generally from someone of Caucasian descent who, who has that rather perspective on critical race theory, too. Which, which is, I can oftentimes take it better when it comes from someone who's Caucasian than I can from someone that's African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, but you asked me where that comes from or right. why that quote even exists or why that's making the rounds, right? And mm-hmm. it's really... Living in America. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I will have to say that it is a byproduct of this political climate that yeah. we're currently in. Right. Critical race theory is not anything new. I mean, critical race theory is as old as I am, older, in fact. I mean, it was something that sort of started coming to fruition in the late 60s, you know, 1970s, definitely. Um, But you now have people that are fixated and focused on it because we live in a political climate where 
the political climate works best when it is divisive, when you have something to get people up in arms about, to make people go to the polls and vote for you because yeah. you are going to, um, you're playing upon, upon people's fears yeah. and you're going to save them from the horror that you're describing. So right. that right there is a horror that somebody is describing. And it is playing upon somebody's fears, right? And it will drive voters to the polls. So yeah. that's what that is. That yeah. is um, that is a game, yeah. right? Unfortunately. Like propaganda. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 All right. What, what emotions stirred in you when I read that quote? Or that excerpt, rather? White races? So it, it I'm... I'm it placed me into a defensive posture in in the moment of striking, yeah, verbally to something like, why would you be afraid of of a theory, right? Like, why would you why would you not want to explore it? Why wouldn't you want to talk right. about it? Why is it such hate that's associated to this thing? Yeah, and why is it so why is it so st- a strong feeling of it? It it made me think that whoever presented that is, um not versed in even having or open to having a conversation yeah. about it. It's yeah. like, I've already made my opinion up. Yeah. This is what it is. And nobody should actually even, you know, accept it. Because it's coming from a place of fear. That's, mm-hmm. that's yeah. what that is. Yeah. And, you know, remember when we were in um, elementary, middle school, high school, and we would work on science projects and you would have um, um, a hypothesis, right? Yep. A, a question presented. Like, this is something that we're going to examine and see sort of where the truth lies. Is this true or is right. this not true? That is where learning comes from. The hypothesis, the the theories, you know, having the opportunity to vet it. But now you never can get to the truth because people want to close it or shut it down before mm-hmm. you actually yeah. do the research, before you actually do the work. They don't even want to hear what something is. It sounds like this, so I'm against it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we we get that here mm-hmm. a lot. Like if you just leave the show and go take a look at our reviews, mm-hmm. our reviews are polarized. Mm-hmm. They are either overwhelmingly positive or you can tell it's a review written by someone who didn't even click play. They looked at the name mm-hmm. while black and mm-hmm. decided that was an issue. Mm-hmm. But let's let's kind of dive in a little bit, right? Yeah. What is critical race theory? So really, critical race theory is just an examination of how laws that were written to be facially neutral mm-hmm. um, have impacted society, whether you're white, black, brown. It is the intersection between race and law in this country. I will also say that, in my personal opinion, um, because you do have some people of color who are against critical race theory, you know? You say Condoleezza Rice? Well, just, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. That you slipped have, out. Sorry. You have some people that are against it that are people of color <laughs> because they say that it um, will make uh, individual or school-age children um, less proud to be African-American because it will sort of suggest that they can't be something because of the things that have transpired over the history of this country. Yeah. Is critical race theory bigger than schools? What do you mean? Well, the, the context we hear it argued on a daily basis is we don't want critical race theory taught in our schools, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So is the, is the concept of critical race theory isolated to our school buildings? 
Is there a place outside of school where the concept of critical race theory is discussed and welcomed? Well, I'm sure it is. I'm sure that there are avenues and venues where critical race theory is discussed outside of the classroom. I think, though, for the proponents of critical race theory, um, there really is no better place than the classroom, right? Because, you know, this isn't something that should be taught in isolation. Right. And for everyone to really get an appreciation or understanding, the best place for that to occur is in the classroom. Right. Yeah. So. Hmm. (laughs) Here's a question. Sure. is it even presented in the classroom? I know as a as a kid growing up um, in Chicago, I, I I never thought about critical race theory. I even heard the term until twenty twenty one, right? Till mm-hmm. last year. Yeah, like yeah. I, I don't even think it it it's permeated into like middle school, grammar school. You know, the curriculum at that level. I think it depends on where you went to school, and I think. It probably never had that name or was never called that. Mm -hmm. But I think depending upon where— It was history. Yeah, it was history. It was a part of history, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm certain that you have heard of the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, right? And that was a neutrally sort of, you know, written law, and yet it had a disproportionate impact on people of color, right? You know, white people use this railway car— Blacks use this railway car. You know, both railway cars are supposed to be equal, right? But usually the black railway car was right behind the engine, and the black people that were riding the locomotives at that time would be covered with soot and dust from the engine, right? So do you consider that equality? Do you Mm. consider that equitable? Um, And so you're looking at this neutrally written law and its disproportionate impact on African-Americans. So if you learned about that, whether it be in elementary, middle school, or high school, then essentially you were learning mm-hmm. critical race theory. They just didn't call it that. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think people have developed more of an issue with the name CRT versus the content? Yes. Mm-hmm. I couldn't answer that fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like the Affordable Health Care Act and Obamacare. Exactly. Right. 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 Yeah. And when they did the poll, and just to use this as an example, <clears throat> you know, when people say, you know, are you for the Affordable Care Act? Oh, yes, I'm for it. It's great. Not that you here for- Obamacare. Exactly. Though. And so it, it's the same thing. <laughs> you don't know, right? Um, oh. So, yeah. 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 That's a level of ignorance or American. racism. Right Except there. for that damn slavery. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Where did this come from? Right, because you've already said this is not new. Mm-hmm. Where did this come from? How did it become such a hot-button topic? Yeah. Well, again, I think, well, first, let's go back. It started to sort of take shape in mm-hmm. the 60s and 80s, and that was a direct component of the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. right? And what people were fighting for, what people were, you know, seeking and trying to obtain to have a better life, right. a more equitable life. Um, but again, this whole conversation didn't start until the last few years, right? Right When politics became um, so contentious. 
But what I will say is, is that when I'm teaching my classes at Morehouse, I always say, let's go all the way back. Right. right. So, yes, we're going to discuss Plessy versus Ferguson, but we're going to take um, a more in-depth look. We're going to look at it, not just that they were separated, but what does that mean? And right. what did that mean for African-Americans during that time? Right. And then let's take a look at the 13th Amendment, which says that, you know, slavery would be abolished except for um, basically for those that were incarcerated. Right. Right. And um, one of the things that I have really enjoyed teaching, because, again, that's a law that's neutral right. on its face. Right. But then we see this huge disproportionate impact against people of color. Right. And, you know, there's an excellent book called Slavery by Another Name. Mm -hmm. And it really talks about how the 13th Amendment, you know, especially in the agricultural South, um, you know, incarceration became the new slavery. Right. And, um, you know, I'm just baffled or it, it's just insane to me that there's a story about Mayor English. I don't know if you all know that we had Mayor English and there's, you know, English Avenue and English Park and all of that. And he was the mayor of Atlanta, um, but he also um, owned a company called the Chattahoochee Brick Company. And what he would do is have, you know, African-American men arrested. Mm. Once they were arrested, then he would have them go work, obviously, for free. Mm. Um, or the Chattahoochee Brick Company that basically ran 24 hours a day. And so, wow. at that point, African Americans were treated worse. He was creating worse. his labor force. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He, became, he became one of the wealthiest men in the country. But, you know, because he had free labor, essentially. Yeah. But what was even worse is that, you know, slaves, at least you want to try to keep them alive, right? You're going to treat them like cattle, you know, like cows and horses, like they serve a purpose. But if they're just free, you didn't even have to pay for them. Yeah. And you can just send the police out or whoever to go out and arrest more. Then you work them till they drop dead and you throw their bodies in a pile on the side of the, 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 the property. And then you go and arrest more. And so, you know, we start wow. there. We don't start in the 1960s when critical race theory started to take shape. We take an examination in my classes and even at the class that I taught at the prison at the beginning when the law started to disproportionately impact people of color. Right. You know, you've mentioned it a couple of times now. For our listeners, I, I do love for them to go and do their own research. Mm -hmm but I also like to educate them on things. Would sure. you mind kind of breaking down Plessy v. Ferguson a little bit for them? Oh, sure. So Homer Plessy um, basically was an African-American. A lot of people concentrate on the fact that he was seven-eighths white, one-eighth mm -hmm. black. When I teach at Morehouse, at the end of the day, he was black. So right. that's, that's what we need to know. The negrosity was still strong. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so he was black. And... He purchased a ticket and attempted to sit in a white railway car. And um, he was arrested and he was fined because he was an African-American sitting in this railway car. And that case basically said that separate but equal is okay in this country. Although we know that historically from that time, Separate but equal never really truly meant equal, just right. as I described with the railway cars when it was when that doctrine was applied to education and the schools, right? A, a, a 
predominantly white school or a white school would get, you know, new textbooks. African-American schools would get old, torn up books, missing pages, all of that. Is that equitable? The learning environment may not even be the same. You know, this building may be air conditioned. This building may not have air conditioning. This building may have heat. This building may not have heat. So just because you have two buildings does not make them equitable. And so, you know, what is the learning like in December in Iowa um, and you don't have heat? Are you really concentrating on the lesson or are you trying to stay warm? And for your counterparts who are in a heated building, are they concentrating on staying warm or are they able to focus and listen to the teacher? Right. Right. So, Mm. what are the most common pros and most common cons for CRT? Well, let's start with the pros. Okay. I think with regard to the pros is that um, history is important. Right. Right. And not just African-American history, but all history. I mean, I for one you know, want to know um, what happened to Jewish communities, right? Right. Um, You know, I would never want to um, prohibit the education on what happened to Jews um, because I think that there is something for us to learn and value and appreciate and respect the tenacity of, you know, what people had to go through and yet they're still here. Right. And I think that the same is true for African-Americans. When you look at from slavery to, you know, these rules and laws and statutes that really try to disembowel African-Americans, but we're still here, right. there is a beauty in that. And I think that that's not just something that African-Americans could, can appreciate. I think that all races can appreciate that. So learning to me is valuable. Right. Um, I don't think we ever really want to get to a place in society where we only want to teach the good things, right? Because history isn't always good. It isn't always pretty. Right. Um, but there's always something to learn there. Um, the, the cons, when you say the cons, you mean the cons of teaching CRT? Right. Matter of fact, let me, let me change that. Okay. What are the perceived cons, the stated cons for those who do not wish to see it taught in our school? So when I've done some research, I'll start with people of color who, are, who have a perceived con against CRT. And that is that they've accomplished, we're mm-hmm. talking about parents, that they've accomplished um, a certain status in this country And that if you start teaching their kids or students in general about how race has impacted law and law has impacted race, that it will make their children less confident, Mm -hmm. that they will be less likely to succeed because they will feel inferior. I I don't. Again, I I said this earlier, um, to me, when I look at what we've accomplished, I don't think that there should be any inferiority there because you are defying the odds. You are accomplishing 
in spite of, in spite of all of this, you still have doctors and lawyers and astronauts. You still have teachers. You still have nurses and firefighters and police. Even though you had all of these things that said you couldn't, right? right. So to me, that's a story of triumph. Absolutely. Right? Um, you know, I, I will tell you that um, even my dad who went to medical school, when he, he, I think he made a perfect score on two portions of the medical boards, mm -hmm. right? And when he uh, applied to, for residency at several hospitals, he was, you know, no, 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 mm -hmm. no, no. He had to keep fighting, even though he had a perfect score on two portions of the medical school boards. Wow. Um, and that was just in 1974. I mean, it sounds like a long time ago, but it really, it really wasn't. wasn't. It really wasn't. And so those are challenges that, you know, happened then, and we still have challenges. When I'm talking to my students at Morehouse, I always tell them you have to be three, four, five, ten times better to be the same. Absolutely. To be treated the same. So. Do you? Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so, you know, and the perceived cons for people that aren't people of color is that it's going to make them look bad. Right. If if my ancestors, if if my kids or grandkids learn about what their ancestors did, then it makes us look bad. And, you know, it, we're now in a place in this country where we don't need to discuss it. You know, like we've moved on. Well, what is the old adage? If you forget your history, you're doomed to repeat it. One hundred percent. And, you know, when I look at some of the vitriol that's coming out of this political climate, I think that's true. I think that there is something to be said about having your history swept under the rug and then um, paying a price for that. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And you, this isn't the first time. I'm sorry. This isn't you, the first time. Okay. This isn't the first time this has happened. You know, I also talk about um, Oscarville, Georgia. Are you all familiar with Very Oscarville? Much. Have So I'll talk about it just a little bit. But I. Yeah, well, our, our listeners actually find that that story doesn't seem to be nearly as well known as, say, like a Black Wall Street or, or, mm -hmm. or Tulsa. So right, please, right. please. So, you oh, know, yeah. I, I look at... Stay off Lake Lanier. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. So I look at this and Oscarville was um, a, a city in Georgia that had a thousand black residents and two African-American boys were accused of raping a white woman. And... Um, they were tried, convicted, and sentenced to death in one day. Yep. One day. Now, I don't know what type of hearing that was. I, I mean, that <laughs> hearing had to have lasted all of an hour and 20 seconds. That was good old boy, <laughs> swift justice. Right. <laughs> tried, convicted, and sentenced to death in one day. And that was in 1912. Between 1912 and 1920, the town went from having 1,000 African-American residents with a school, with a church, with uh, all types of, I mean, it was a, a thriving city, mm -hmm. um, to having zero African-American um, in that city. And then the town was filled in with water and it became Lake Lanier. And actually the church and the schools are supposedly still underneath. They never yeah. tore them down. Like all of that is still underneath the water. And in fact, we know that that's true because when we had dropped. a drought, yeah. right, we yeah. started to see some of the 
that town that existed. Um, and then when you find out that that has happened in 100 black towns. Time and time. Across and the time country. And, mm-hmm. and 1900 know, to like 1928, it happened yeah. over and over and over. And imagine if Oscarville had a thousand residents and this one had, uh, you know, hundreds of residents. I mean, that has a huge impact. And we, you know, there's something else that maybe one day we'll have the time to talk about, but mm-hmm. generational wealth and how that was impacted when You're you talking to us. create, yes, create, do this to a town. Um, and eminent domain and how it plays a role. And then, you know, that in and of itself, we're talking about 4 million people over the course of this country's history that have been impacted. And again, this all goes back to CRT because in each one of these situations, we're talking about laws that were neutral on their face that should not have had a disproportionate impact. But in the in its application, in the application of this these mm-hmm. laws, um, there was a disproportionate impact. And we did lose generational wealth. We did lose property. We did lose the ability to pass something on to our children. And that impacts us even to this day, not just the, us in this room, but every African-American, it impacts. I, I absolutely love how you just packaged that up, right? Because coming into this conversation, even myself, mm-hmm. right? And, I, and I'm sure a ton of our listeners expected this conversation to be solely about arguing and fighting for our history to be told. Let me scratch that. Not even necessarily our history, but factual, real American history to be told inside the classroom. The Mm -hmm. truth, right? And, And you just took it to a place where, you know what? On a very simple level, this is about telling the truth of what's happened in this country. But in a bit more complex level, this is our story. This has impact on multiple aspects of our lives today. Right. Levels of education, wealth, options, mental impact, right? Mm-hmm. Because that stuff is carried down between the generations and whatnot. I absolutely love the way you were able to like, break that down. So I, I want to ask another question and build on top of that. I'm going to assume, and listeners, forgive me if this is not you, I'm going to assume that the way you explained that was new information for some. Do you think that it is malicious in its intent when people are fighting CRT in schools only to protect themselves from the truth in history, only to ensure that little Timmy or Tommy or whomever doesn't learn that his great-grandfather did indeed enslave, mistreat, kill, and beat black folks, and little Timmy, Tommy, or Susan today is still benefiting from the atrocities that were committed 70, Mm -hmm. 80, 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. So let me just say that I think that, again, most of this stems from a place of fear. Mm -hmm. And I do think that, you know, people are scared. And I really don't even think that there should be this fear. Right. Because I think that this helps everybody. When I um, taught this in the prison and like I said, it was a mixed group. Right. It was white. It was black. And I had one student who literally um, he was a white student and he said, you know, 
Professor Murray, I didn't know why you were teaching this. I didn't want to learn about it. I thought that, you know, it was going to be divisive and that you were just going to come in here and say that you're wrong and this is right and all of this. White folks are horrible. and Exactly. And it's really not about this. And this really doesn't have anything to do with you. You are not your grandfather. You are not your great-grandfather. You can be a completely different person. I mean, listen, you can have a brother— you can have a twin brother and be two completely different people, Absolutely. right? And so no one is going to penalize you because of something that your great-grandfather did. But it does go a long way. It does have value in explaining why African-Americans may not have the same level of wealth as other groups, right? Yeah. I mean— um, Think about going back to the story of the Chattahoochee Brick Company and all of the African-American men that lost their lives. So those people that were arrested, they weren't arrested because, I'm talking about by and large, weren't weren't arrested because they murdered somebody. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they were arrested because there was a workforce that was needed, Mm -hmm. and they would pick them up on any small thing. Yeah, jaywalking. Vagrancy. Yeah. Homelessness, yeah. right? We're not talking about violent crimes. We're talking about quality of life crimes. And remember, when the 13th Amendment was put into place, it was right after slavery. So it wasn't like people just had places to go, right? right. So, yes, there probably was a homeless population as people tried to figure out what's next. But you could be arrested for being outside in the wrong moment. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then think about if they had families. What happens to that family when they are arrested and taken to the yeah. Chattahoochee Brick Company and yeah. worked until they die? What happens? For no pay. To, exactly. What happens to that family and those children and the family structure right. and the loss of income because now the father in that role is no longer here, yeah. right? Correct. And so— And the, the kids become the, the new subject, the new target, the exactly. new victim. Right? Yeah. Exactly. The new Brick Company employees, right? Right, right. right. So, well, not even employees, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, right. not even employees. I think that's key. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I, I mean, that's I, it, it. The ability of not wanting to to hear or disseminate the truth mm-hmm. seems like a clear tactic of 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 white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the example of the 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 brick company, right? I, clearly, clearly. The individual knew exactly what he was doing, mm-hmm. um, and I think I, I think I tend to translate that that same scenario into the individuals who make comments like that are intentionally trying to prevent the truth from being mm-hmm. disseminated to the masses. Because yeah, if little Timmy did find out about that, little Timmy should feel a little bit some kind of way about. Wait a minute. Hey y'all, what's up? It's Devin here from Money Honeys. If you're a fan of learning about your business and finances through storytelling and pop culture, then you got to be sure to check out and subscribe to Money Honeys, a show that covers the nitty gritty of maintaining your personal wealth through fun conversation. And you know what? It's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip hop, powered by creators. My family did this to black people. I love uh, Johnny over here. We're right. best friends. I can't believe he would do something. Like, we would do something like that. And then I think it would bring up a bigger conversation around, holistically around, well, well how do we make this right? Mm-hmm. 
Right, like that could be about healing. Yes, right. Yeah, and I think that that really should be the the what comes out of all of this. What comes out of CRT is that this is another way that we get to healing. And you know, for those that argue that this is divisive, I don't think it's divisive. This is bringing about an opportunity for us all to grow. Right. Yeah. Like, I guess one of my perspectives is this. I, I. I don't think it's divisive either. Mm -hmm. But even if it is, it's still our truth, mm -hmm. right? It's, it, it is still what happened, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and if, we're, if, we're, if we're worried as a collective community about Timmy or Tommy or whomever feeling less than because of what his or her great-great-grandparents did or great-grandparents did, hmm. like, I mean... Maybe that's an asshole in me, but like no one, no one is sitting back and asking the question, what about our children, mm -hmm. right? Right. When, when they've grown yeah. up in a house that has told them this went on, mm -hmm. but yet the people who they trust to educate them mm -hmm. are now saying, that's not how it went down. Mm -hmm. Right. Little things like, and I, I don't know this to be true or not, but I've read things that, that talk about wanting to change wording in textbooks mm -hmm. from slaves or enslaved people to like workers mm -hmm. and, and, and things like that. Like yeah. to me. Which again, takes me right back to slavery, right? right. Because um, those slaves that were permitted to read, um, they were given Bibles and those passages in the Bible that might invoke a feeling of trying to get out of the situation, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Those pages were taken Revolt. out. Right. Yeah, we're yeah. removed. And right. so now when you try to change, again... Doing the same thing. Exactly. But I also think that we've gotten to this place in society where, you know, we often hear, like, everyone gets a trophy, right? right. For showing up, you get a trophy, right? Whereas... You know, at least when I grew up, you know, first, second, and third place. Right. You, gotta, you, gotta, you had to earn something. Right. Yeah, it, you weren't getting the trophy just because you showed up. You had an orange for participating. <laughs> yes. So, you know, you have that. But Gatorade. Then here, you know, we've we've gotten to a point now also where we are scared shitless to have, you know, difficult conversations. Right. 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 And sometimes, you know. We don't want to have uncomfortable conversations, so we just gloss over things. And I really don't think that that's helping anyone to just gloss over something. To it, just, it leads to mediocrity. Yeah, yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. To imagine something the way we wish it were, but it, it never truly was. Yeah, right? yeah. 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 I want to go back to that question around divisiveness, though. Mm -hmm. Because I, I love to live in the, in the world where, um, where truth can truly set you know, as society free. Like, right. I, I, I'm optimistic mm -hmm. on, There's always on something humanity to learn from and the society, truth. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if, if you were to think or attempt to put your mind into the role of a white supremacist, I would absolutely say this is divisive. And I want it to be divisive because I don't want the truth to right, be told. Right, you want because, it gone. Yeah. Like, you want to control the narrative. Yeah. I, and I don't, want, I, I don't want to do anything that would potentially jeopardize the stronghold that I have on society. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, if I've made millions through my, through my family's, yeah, like, my family's history of oppressing people, and I know what that looks like, mm -hmm. and my son or daughter stands to continue to benefit from that, yeah. I would absolutely want to suppress that. So, in my opinion, I think it does become divisive when 
there is an intentionality in yeah. suppressing truth. Yeah, and I, I think I like that's that what, what I it works. I think that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, the machine is now allowing us to make it a divisive issue, yeah. so that we can begin to. Hey, let's not call it slavery. Let's call it mm-hmm. they were workers. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Well, there we're may be some truth it. to that. There may be some truth to that. But I also think that that goes back to my earlier point when I was talking about Atlanta's community court, when mm-hmm. I realized yeah. that not everyone is a Ted Bundy <clears throat> and a Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, was there a Ted Bundy? To, to absolutely. White men. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but was there a Ted Bundy? Absolutely. Was right. there a Jeffrey Dahmer? Absolutely. So although not everyone subscribed, there may be some truly inherently right. bad actors, Correct. right? Correct. So, yeah. We got to yeah. weed them out. Exactly. <laughs> we got to weed them out. Man, I, yeah. I, I, really, I really like the point you, you brought up, right, about where the divisiveness comes from. Because when, when I sit back and I, I look at, like, my children— and their peer group, not everyone, but they seem to be significantly more open mm-hmm. to doing things right. Correct. And it, and if I am the man or the woman who built the system, I'm scared when Absolutely. I look at these younger generations and their openness to all that's different and new around them. How they embrace that. Yep. As a person who is who is concerned about my personal generational wealth. If I'm in their position, I'm like, huh, this could be the end to all this shit. Yeah. These little motherfuckers may give away all this money. (laughs) I I think that's a hell of a point to to think about what position they may be in, why Mm -hmm. they're fighting so hard to change this this narrative. Well, <laughs> let's just look at where this fear really started right. to raise its head. And it was, in my opinion, when Obama was elected, right? Because oh, yeah. you, of feel ready to, you feel like, well, for some people, uh, that they're losing a power that they've had for ever. ever. Right? Ever. Since the creation of right. the United States, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so... After that, and then leading into a Trump administration who plays on those fears, Absolutely. right? Yep. And and it wasn't just Trump. I need to make that clear. Like this there, is a play that's been run many times. Yeah. Well, yeah. and and after, once Obama was elected, certain people started playing on those fears and capitalizing on those fears right then. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of people will say, and I'm just using this as an example. A lot of people will say, "Oh, it was the Second Amendment." that gave, you know, individuals the right to bear arms, mm-hmm. right? You hear that all the time, right? When in actuality, it wasn't the Second Amendment that really said that. Um, it gave the militia the right Correct. to bear arms, right? Correct. But there was this case, uh, Heller, mm-hmm. that was decided when? In 2008. Not 1912, not 1928, not 1946, in 2008. The case of Heller interpreted the Second Amendment as saying that it gave all the right to bear arms. Now, where did that case come from? It came because Obama, when he was elected, um, people had a fear that he was going to take away their rights to have guns or to Hmm. uh, get these, what is it called, background checks and mental health checks and all of that. So now we need this law to— He was going to hinder the process regardless. Exactly. Now we need this law to uh, explicitly state that the Second Amendment gives you the right to bear arms. Individuals. Individuals, right? And so— you have to look at that, and that's that's really what 
the CRT is about. It's about mm. looking at laws and how race and law in a wider spectrum impact society, right? And then, you know, one of the things that we often forget mm. and we don't talk about it very much is there was a great, I call him a legal scientist, mm. okay? And his name was Charles Hamilton Houston. And he was really the one... Get a quick note. Yeah, he was really the one that came up with this idea of how to um, attack race-based laws, right? And so, um, for instance, when you're looking at separate but equal in schools, right? He was one of the attorneys that sort of, you know, was able to go out to the Midwest and say, listen, under separate but equal, there was an African-American that wanted to go to law school. And the white law school denied admission. So Charles Hamilton Houston said, well, under separate but equal, you're supposed to provide a separate facility. So we'll just keep doing this all, the, all around the country, right? And um, people did not want to pay to have two of everything. Mm. So now we got to have two medical schools. Now we have to have two law schools. Now we have separate to have two was, business was schools. cost too much. Exactly, mm -hmm. right? So you are, you are attacking the wallet. You are attacking mm. the pocketbook. You are attacking the purse. And so, but now... <laughs> By freedom and finances. Now you have individuals that are using Charles Hamilton Houston's model in the same way, right? So in the case of Heller, we're now going to take this case, we're going to attack it and get it up to the Supreme Court. If you look at what's happening in abortion right now, we're going to um, come up with cases, right? We're going to appeal it all the way up to the Supreme Court now that we have a Supreme, uh, a conservative Supreme Court mm -hmm. to get these laws on the book. It, it's, it's, it's designed that way. Like, that's what's happening now, right? So, <laughs> it's so much deeper. And really and truly, <laughs> like, really this is, is something man. that we could, like, spend hours right. talking about. And so, it probably sounds illogical and nonsensical, but it's because, you know, we have... It, it doesn't. It does yeah. not. It doesn't. It, it, it doesn't. Seems, it seems it rational <laughs> and logical, <laughs> actually. <laughs> it, 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 it sucks the hope out of, uh, like, righteousness sometimes when mm -hmm. you think about the tactics that you know, are reversed for an opposite outcome, mm -hmm. right? When they're designed for a level of, you know, leveling the playing field or equality mm -hmm. in a sense. And then it's it's reversed to be used to double down on something that is absolutely unjust, unfair, and and has the potential to actually change the trajectory of the United States. Right, right. You know, we're, we're, we're smart guys. But, but you're by far the expert. What have we not talked about that you think is important for people to understand yeah. as it relates to critical race theory? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, there is literally so much that we could discuss. Um, I think really and truly the, the main takeaway that I would like for your audience to mm -hmm. know is that... Um, <clears throat> We need to get back to a point where we are doing our own research. And right. before you just jump on a bandwagon or before you're spoon-fed um, an opinion or a thought or an ideology, do your own research and yeah. make your own decisions. You know, 
so often now, you know, between the internet and between, you know, social media and all of that, you know, we're spoon-fed information and we don't even know if the information we're being spoon-fed is rooted in anything of substance. Amen, brother. Right? Yes, that's so true. And I think that... You make propaganda easy today. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and and it's horrible because people that like to play upon fears, they can do it (coughs) with vigor. Because yeah. they know that you're not going to go back and and do the research and yeah. find out for yourself. They can say anything. And the next thing you know, I heard the saying, and, you know, I believe it 100%. And it says that can make it halfway around the world before the truth can get up and put, it pan- put its pants on, yeah. you know? <laughs> and there is some truth to that. Like, before you know it, something that um, is not even true— yeah has made it into all types of crooks and crevices and has really taken on a life of its own. And, you know, it's really tragic that something that could be healing, not just to African-Americans, but to society, is being um, brandished as something evil when it's not. And it really is something that we were learning in school when schools were in the business of being able to teach varying opinions, you know, you don't always have to agree, but there's something to be learned in that discourse. And sometimes, right, you learn more from falling down than you do from just getting it right all the time. That's right. You know, there's a blessing in having a scant knee. There's a book called The Blessing of a Scant Knee. And, you know, it talks about how you know, sometimes you learn more from making a mistake, right? Or having varying opinions. If everyone always agreed with you, there would be no growth. Right. Yeah. yeah. Black folks, I think that is doubly important for you all to truly recognize the need to do your own research. The reason I say that is because what the numbers will tell you is that black media is 1% of all media, which means our stories, our narratives, the data that you're being fed is being controlled by people who don't look like you, right? And just because they do look like you doesn't mean they actually give a damn about you. But do your own research. Now, to that point, how, where, right? Because if you, if you go online right now, I did it earlier today and yesterday, and I just typed in critical race theory. Mm-hmm. I was inundated mm-hmm. with sources, opinion, information. And I had to really, truly dig through and sort through to find what I thought was accurate. Mm-hmm. Where do people go to find trusted information to inform their decision. So how about this? How about I go and go through my resources and I provide that to you and maybe you can put that... Love it. Yeah. Love it. Mm-hmm. Love it. We'll, we'll, we'll get that one out to you yeah. for our black Because you're right. There is so much misinformation. <clears throat> it's difficult sometimes to weed through yeah. all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, mm-hmm. the last thing I want That's people true. to do is be well-intentioned and give up because they can't find their way to the truth. Sure. And this, I think... This topic and other topics that we talk about are far too important for us to just rely on what is shared because often there is an intentionality behind what is shared and it's not necessarily for our benefit. Mm -hmm. What do you think people need to walk away from this episode understanding? I think that people need to walk away um, knowing that there's still value in learning, even learning that which is uncomfortable that which is unfamiliar. So often I run into people and, you know, again, like the student at the prison, you know, I don't know it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to know it. 
I'm not going to know it. And then at the end, you know, this, this student was like my biggest advocate. And he was white. And he was, you know, talking about CRT. And he was like, you know, Professor Murray, this was, this was amazing. This was amazing. And, you know, I don't say that lightly because mm-hmm. the amount of reluctance that he had at the beginning mm-hmm. is not unlike what we see in social media and on the news all the time. Yeah. But when you just let your guard, and that doesn't mean that you agree with everything that I say, right? right? Or with everything that, you know, a CRT scholar says. But have going through the process of learning and, you know, vetting and questioning is something of value. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for the everyday person, and we're, we're wrapping up, but I, I want to add this on. You had the benefit of being in front of this person whom you knew wasn't necessarily interested in what you were teaching. Right. But you knew you, you, knew you had their attention. And those moments, however long they were, changed their perspective. That's right. How would you have reacted to the situation had it been different? Had that person made their beliefs on CRT true to you, known to you rather? but you didn't have their attention in a classroom setting or in a moment, how would you have communicated to them something to change their perspective on CRT? And, and I'm asking this because I think that's the, that's the position that people find themselves in every single day, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're constant arguments and discussions on social media about topics from people who have no interest in learning. Yeah. How do they talk about CRT in those instances? I don't know. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I think that's fair. And um, I always try to be transparent. I never try to give anyone an answer just because I need to seem like I'm that bright and that intelligent. So I'm just going to give you an answer. So They already know you are. They heard you this whole hour. They know. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you, in those difficult situations, I'm not sure because sometimes the acrimony is so high that the person can't even hear you. Like, they can't even hear what you're saying. You're wasting your breath all the time. Sometimes, you know, the person, you have to either give them the information or you have to say it. And sometimes it's, you know, saying it not once, not twice, not three times, but you have to keep saying it, right? And hopefully, eventually, something will spark in that person. You know, remember when... um, we had African-Americans that were trying to integrate schools and the vitriol that they were met with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now some of those same people that were screaming, spitting, shouting, throwing things now regret. But at the time, they couldn't hear it. Right. They could not hear it. It took 40, 50 years of, you know, living and seeing the fallacy of their ways, the error of their ways, right? And so I don't always think that we're going to have an immediate, and and that's another thing, like we we oftentimes want, um, what do they call that? Um, A microwave sort of answer, like, you know, we put it in and it comes out and it's ready. And I think sometimes, you know, history has shown us, exactly. It just takes time. Yeah. It takes time. And when you have all of this going on in politics now, that's not doing any of us any favors. It's not doing African-Americans any favors. It's not doing whites any favors. It's not doing the Hispanic, Latino community any favors. You know, until we start working together again, and I'm really hopeful that we will, um, we're all losing. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. 
completely agree with that. I, I like how you lose. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Everybody is. Yeah. Like there's a certain set, a certain class of individuals that are manipulating the mm-hmm. game mm-hmm. and they are winning. But yeah. the mass majority of individuals are losing. But I, I mm-hmm. really do like the fact of how you answered that last question around, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Because the, the complexity of that question mm-hmm. is massive. Right, like sure. the, the the psyche of individuals in social media, the the, the the anonymous responses in the way that you can actually be the person that you really want to be, but that's Absolutely. not really who you are. Mm-hmm. Like it, you you're dealing with multiple personas, yeah. right? Like in, in one context of a question, and then you're expecting to kind of get this genuine, truthful type interaction in an environment that is completely not that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it that's, well, that's one of the big problems with difficult. social media in general. Yes, mm-hmm. that is such a mm-hmm. difficult space to to try to influence in a in a positive truthful light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and but yeah. Yeah. For me it, it's turned into an analysis of do I think the time I spend trying to talk to this person will add value anywhere. Correct. Mm-hmm. Right? Correct. And, and if I don't feel like there's anything that I can say that would get through, I might as well say that breath for something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The whole and, thought. And, and can I just everything. say, yeah. too, you know, I would encourage your listeners and everyone, you know, don't give up, yeah. right? Like, we have to be intentional, right? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, conversations aren't easy. Sometimes they're uncomfortable, but they have to be had. You know, I'm always talking to my family just about even, this is, an offshoot, but it's something so small, but it's something that's so important. And that is jury duty, right? Because, you know, people, you know, African-Americans will often not necessarily be inclined to to go. Yeah, because, you know, they have to take off time from work. They may be working multiple jobs or they may be working an hourly job where, you know, if they don't show up, then they don't get paid. It's not like they are getting, you know, a yearly salary or whatever. And um, what happens is, is that individuals who look like us that are charged with crimes aren't being judged by a jury of their peers. What you're getting is, you know, um, let's say that the person charged is African-American and they're 23 years old and the jury is made up mostly of... 52-year-old white men. Well, let's even go with one higher. 60, 62 white men, white women who mm. retired who have the time to do jury duty, yeah. right? And so that's a conversation that yeah. I'm always having and I sound like a broken record, but I hope that I can encourage more people that when you get that jury summons, you go. Because you can make a difference. Like every day there are things that we can do to make a difference. And so often we'll say, oh, you know, I'm just throwing my hands up. It's nothing we can do. Every day you can do something. It is is the jury who is making all these decisions. Yeah. A whole life. That we're in the streets protesting about, fighting about, angry about, crying about. It is absolutely somebody's life. Yeah. Yeah. From that one moment. Of, of jury duty. Yes. And every time we and say just, no, you could have been the one correct that needed that voice inside of that jury. Yeah. And, and, and just remember, you know, just because you have an African-American in charge with a crime and an African-American jury does not mean that African-American jury is going to let them off. Right. But what you do want is you want equity. It shouldn't be yeah, that a 22-year-old yeah. Caucasian male who commits assault with a deadly weapon gets five years and a black person the same age charged with the same offense gets 25 years. Yep. Like, there's got to be equity. Because that 62-year-old white man for. can very well look at that 
defend it and see himself. Exactly. Correct. Yep. Like, I exactly. remember doing that when I was young. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, I'm going to relate to that. For equity. Yep. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. That's a hell of a strong point. Mm-hmm. But if he black on the same with the same jury, I don't I can't I can't resonate with this young Right. Young he looks like man. the one who robbed me. He already me. looked mm-hmm. like a thug. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is why again diversity is also so important, yeah. right? Yeah. In every mm-hmm. space, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Winfield brother, this has been amazing. Well, thank you. At the end of every episode, we always hand the mic over to our guests to tell the people, the listeners, our family, whatever it is that's on your heart to share with them. So the floor is yours. Okay. Well, first off, I just want to say thank you all for having me. I really have enjoyed it, and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, And and more is coming with this, brother. Believe that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the thing that I would like to say is that, um, again, I just said it, that each day we have the opportunity to impact change. And I don't care how small or how monumental, you don't have to do big things all the time to make a difference. And so these types of conversations are important because, you know, knowing our history is important. Sharing our history and, you know, being a voice when other people are naysayers or negative and say, you know, this shouldn't be included in schools. Don't be afraid to give your opinions and your thoughts. Like we can't always be silent. Yep. Like we also have to, you know, share our concerns and, you know, what's important to us. Um, so I would just say, be intentional in everything that you do. Be intentional about education because when we look at CRT, um, critical race theory, the biggest attack has always been on education, especially when it comes to African-Americans. So be intentional in that space as much as you can and everywhere else that you can. So I love it, brother. All we can say is thank you, man. No, thank, thank you. you. This has been thank spot you. on. If you're comfortable, feel free to share how they can follow you, learn from you. And if not, Edit that part out. Keep on rolling. Well, I don't know how you can follow me, but (laughs) (laughs) I will say you can always look me up on uh, LinkedIn. I am there um, and I will be creating an Instagram page. And, you know, hopefully we will continue to have more conversations like this. And maybe I'll be back here. And maybe you back. (laughs) We we already talked about some of these topics and we got to figure it out. Cool, brother, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you all. Art, you got anything? Hey, um... Dope episode, another one. Information and data literacy is extremely important. Yeah. Do your research. Figure yeah. out how to validate what you've heard before you disseminate information. Make sure that it's true. Make sure that you feel comfortable with it before you just start talking. Well, you're a poet over there. <laughs> validate before you disseminate. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> love it. But we love y'all. All right. Wild Black, we out. Peace. What's up, y'all? This is Clint Coley, and I'm the host of the Music is a Love Language podcast. Now, check this out. If you're a fan of music podcasts, then be sure to check out and subscribe to Music is a Love Language podcast. We are a podcast that has honest conversations about music all day, every day. If you like to argue music, this is the podcast you want to be listened to. And it's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip-hop and powered by creators. Again, Make sure you guys follow and subscribe. Music is the Love Language Podcast. I'm Clint Coley. Hope to have your ear soon.